นมูทัสสะบังคุวะทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะนมูทัสสะวะทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะนมูทัสสะวะทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนมัสสะเ
to meet ourselves, to get to know ourselves. And, and maybe we find out a lot of that chatter that's going on inwardly, the agreeing and disagreeing that we somehow feel obliged to be entertaining. And it's just a waste of energy. And perhaps when we see that, then it'll maybe start to fade out a bit and we have a little bit more contentment. And However, that ability to be restrained and not just react, that's a certain sort of a strength. It seems to come naturally to us just to react when somebody says something and maybe we don't agree with it, we want to just tell them about it. And, and that lack of restraint... Uh, is regrettable because we often don't have our own thoughts properly formed. We don't really speak from a place that we feel is true necessarily. And and so the encouragement is to cultivate this strength. This is a very important aspect of the Buddha's teachings is to cultivate these various abilities, these various forms of strength. What in English language we refer to as virtues. It's not a word that's used a great deal these days. That particular form of strength, which means that, for instance, in this case we can exercise restraint with speech when that's what's called for. Or we can exercise patience when that's what's called for. We can exercise generosity when that's what's called for. These various virtues that uh, all the great religions of the world would refer to and certainly that the Buddha identified uh, as as really worth cultivating and developing these strengths. If we don't have these strengths, then if we don't have these abilities, then to some degree we're actually disabled, uh, which is... Uh, leaves us vulnerable and we can easily get pulled into saying things that we really wish we didn't say. So I think this is worth focusing on, worth highlighting that the teachings that we've received from the Buddha uh, encourage us to recognize we have these potentials, we have these potentials to, to cultivate that which is really good, that which is really wholesome and If we don't cultivate it, then we're left, as I said, vulnerable. We're left somewhat lacking. So we all know, yes, that the Buddha taught about dukkha, the Buddha taught about mindfulness of suffering, uh, leads to freedom from suffering. We're all aware of that. But some people are in too much of a hurry to dwell on their suffering and don't have the ability, haven't cultivated the ability to meet the suffering. Mm-hmm. If we don't have the ability to meet the suffering, then the suffering can overwhelm us, and that's, that's a real risk. I mean, there's, there's lots of suffering in life, there's lots of challenges in life. Everybody experiences challenges in life, and if we're not rightly prepared to meet those challenges, then we can be overwhelmed by them. We can react uh, unskillfully. 
And so the Buddha didn't just teach being mindful of suffering. He also taught really dwell on an awareness, cultivate an awareness of this potential we have for cultivating skillfulness, goodness, ability, competence, to really upgrade our level of competence. Mm. And if we don't do it, then again, as I was saying, we can find ourselves excessively vulnerable. And the difficulties that we have to face, and we all have to face difficulties, like at the almsgiving ceremony this morning, there's a question asked about how do we handle loss? Well, everybody experiences loss, whether it's a, a minor loss like you lose your phone and you can't find it. Well, that's normal and that's frustrating. It's that you lose your glasses, where are your glasses? That's, that's frustrating, that's disappointing. You lose your health, that's frustrating, that's disappointed. Yeah. Or you lose a friend, a friend passes away. That's, that can be very painful and, or the threat of loss, you know, that if we get a, a, a seriously challenging bit of news and about our own health, and that is painful and disappointing. These sort of things happen to all of us. So how do we prepare ourselves to meet the pain of loss, the challenge that comes to us? Like you know, children... Learning to walk, that's a challenge. And they fall over and cry because it's difficult. They need to learn how to walk. Then they need to learn how to go to school and leave behind mum and dad and be on their own. And that can be difficult. And then as we grow up, navigating challenges involved in life and all of these challenges that we face, we could just lump them under the title of dukkha, suffering. That's what the Buddha taught. And then we can look into our suffering. And yes, there is an encouragement to look into our suffering. But also there's this encouragement to really dwell on the possibility of increasing our competence. I know as as I get older... My um, my limbs get even more painful. That motorbike accident I had when I was 19 <laughs> has serious consequences. And the surgery I've had and has consequences. And, and now my uh, knees and ankle are not in very great shape. And so I'm disinclined to do exercise. And what happens when you don't do exercise? Well, we all know if you don't do exercise, then your muscle tone starts to diminish. And what happens when muscle tone diminishes, then you're more likely to trip, fall over, twist an ankle, get hurt. And so everybody always when you get older you've got to keep up the exercise. Do your exercises and keep the muscle tone. Well it's a suitable um, metaphor for uh, the cultivation of virtue. The heavy lifting of life, if you haven't got muscle tone, you can't lift stuff, not anything of any weight. And likewise, if our hearts are not imbued with virtue, with that kind of strength, the strength of integrity, the strength of generosity, the strength of patience, the strength of honesty, 
the strength of kindness, these various virtues that the Buddha identified. If our heart is not equipped with these abilities, then we can't do the heavy lifting of life. We can't adequately meet the challenges. And this is from the gross, most obvious level of like dealing with what's going on in society now, the upheavals that are coming about as a result of all the disruption, the various influences that bring about the, the rapid rate of change that leaves people so disoriented and confused and that, on that level, on the surface level, but then also on the more subtle level. And you start to develop uh, spiritual faculties and find out that you're Capacity for trusting, the very first of the five spiritual faculties, sadha, the ability to simply trust, is not well established. And how do you do that? And how do you establish trust? When, if trust was damaged in an early stage of life, if your primary carers, for instance, uh, didn't act as they ideally should have acted, then you can be carrying some very painful wounds on that level and and then you put yourself on a meditation retreat or a meditation routine and then you, routine and then you start to realize you've got this serious deficit of trust. Yeah. Or you've got a very active, busy mind. You know, the, the encouragement or the cultivation of that form of inner strength that we refer to as samadhi or collectedness, or, uh, that particular discipline of attention. You've got a very active mind, it's all over the place and you find it really frustrating, really difficult to channel your attention and get frustrated and all hit up and self-critical and judgmental. How do we meet that challenge? How do we meet these challenges, whether they're coarse, superficial, surface challenges or more subtle or very subtle? Well, in all cases, the challenges can only be met with ability, with competence. And we don't necessarily get born with that, depending on our parami and virtues that we get born with. And Some people are born with superior virtues, but all of us have to develop these levels of competence. And, And if we don't, then what tends to happen is the mind easily goes into blaming which is a pretty unattractive condition. Blaming society or blaming our parents or blaming astrological configuration, blaming something external for our lack of ability. So once again, this point that is really worth dwelling on. Yes, the Buddha did teach get interested in suffering, in the reality of suffering, in the actuality of dukkha. Get really, really interested in it. Discipline attention so as to not just habitually turn away and you know, distract yourself and go and eat a pizza or listen to something entertaining. Learn to turn towards suffering and inquire, get interested in what's really going on here. And also get interested in upgrading our ability, our skills, upaya, skillful means that the Buddha referred to. So some people are so interested in developing their goodness, their 
their what in traditional Pali language, punya, yeah, that they're, they're just busy doing good things all the time, but they never really want to stop and look at the suffering of life. Yeah, they're averse towards suffering and not interested. Well, the Buddha likewise was just into having a nice time for the first part of his life and until he found out that that wasn't going to give him what he was looking for. So eventually, after a great effort, he managed to reach the intuition that he needed to turn his attention around and look at the causes of the feelings of frustration, of limitation, of disappointment, of despair, until he realized that, yeah, clinging, this ignorant relationship to desire, clinging to desire, and this is the cause of all suffering, essentially. Not everybody wants to look at that. The Buddha didn't want to look at that initially. It took a lot of work before he was able to turn around and look at it. And I remember a talk that I heard Ajahn Chah give where he was criticizing some of the people coming to the monastery who are all they're interested in doing is, is cultivating goodness. The word in Thai is tambun. Tambun, making, making merit. Tambun, tambun. And he said, until you reach the point where you... It's so heavy you can't carry it. You've got so much merit that you don't know what to do with it. You, you can't even carry it. And the point he was making was that, yes, the, the virtue, the punya, the wholesomeness, the skillfulness, we do need it, but it's there to serve the cultivation of insight and the development of wisdom, realization of ultimately a realization of freedom. That's what he was pointing towards. So both of these aspects. Hmm. Sometimes people are too interested in being good and doing good and forget that there's some deeper, more subtle work. Other times people are in too much of a hurry to investigate suffering when they're not really ready. They haven't developed the capacity for holding the pain of life. And whether it's the pain in the world that you look at, it can be very overwhelming so much pain around us and we're not rightly prepared it can overwhelm us or or our own inner pain old pain current pain there is a real risk all of us can end up getting pulled into the vortices of suffering so Building up our storehouse of goodness, as I like to refer to it, replenishing our storehouse of goodness on a regular basis, and really making an intentional effort to develop virtue so that we're not found lacking, so that we don't feel that uh, we don't experience overwhelm. Sometimes, particularly in you get a little sensitive from cultivating these practices that we are given in this tradition of developing some tranquility, some steadiness of attention and living simply, then our faculties become more, we become more sensitive. And then you catch yourself maybe in a moment of weakness and like you find yourself being particularly conceited or arrogant and it can register really painfully really hurt 
What do we do in that situation? If the appropriate response is to maintain balanced attitude so we don't get pulled into this particular vortex of, of pain, of suffering, so that we can inquire without making it any worse, like getting pulled into self-hatred. Regularly, I hear people talking about the meditation and the so intensely self-critical. There's not enough self-respect. There's not enough feeling of goodness. They don't actually like themselves. They don't actually think that they're good people. A lot often it's the case. Westerners pick up the Buddha's teaching and say, oh, mindfulness of suffering leads to freedom from suffering. Oh, whoopee, well, I've got plenty of suffering. I can just look at my suffering and then it'll disappear. Well, it doesn't work like that. We need to be ready. We need to be ready. We need to equip ourselves with the skills before we can really engage our limitations in a productive way. Likewise with the mm, lack of integrity. Maybe we catch ourselves having compromised integrity and maybe lied or mm, cheated in some way or been unkind and and it can really hurt when in a state of increased sensitivity or, or confusion. Yeah. Yeah. If we're compromising integrity on a regular basis, you can get really confused and and then you just don't know where you're at anymore. And and then if we haven't prepared ourselves properly with a storehouse of a well stocked storehouse of of goodness, of wholesomeness, then we can get pulled into that and in fact get pulled into self-loathing and depression Mm. it'd be very interesting if social scientists I don't know if they've ever done this but it'd be very interesting if some social scientists did some experiments some research and finding if there's a correlation between depression, self-loathing and living a life of integrity I'd be very surprised if there's not a clear correlation that's measurable. Somebody was telling me recently about an embarrassing situation they have with a colleague of theirs who takes them out for lunch from time to time. They, they basically they alternate, apparently, or they, they, they take each other out for lunch and have a conversation and go to nice restaurants. And, but when his colleague books a restaurant, he was saying that he always books a table for three, knowing full well that there are only going to be two of them. And, but he wants a better table, a bigger table. So when they turn up at the restaurant, he lies and says, oh, well, the other person didn't turn up. And apparently, as far as he was concerned, it's a very minor thing. Actually, it's not a minor thing to lie intentionally lie, creates imbalance, psychological imbalance. We make an enemy of ourselves. Just as, for instance, if you know somebody who lies or steals, how do you feel towards them? Basically, you don't trust them. And likewise, when we ourselves lie, we become untrustworthy. We can't trust ourselves. We don't have self-respect, just as you don't respect somebody else who he knows is untrustworthy and unreliable, you don't respect them. 
and as a cause of, you know, I imagine, a considerable amount of the lack of self-respect that so many people suffer from these days because lying is now so common, regrettably, and cheating and being deceitful. And so how do we address this? Well, first is recognizing the connection. The conventional perception, I'm somebody who's willing to make the effort to cultivate impeccability, even if it costs me, even if it costs me friendship, even if people don't like me. If there is such a conventional perception, then it helps protect us. It not just protects us outwardly in the world, but also helps protect psychological balance. The conventional self-perception of of I'm somebody who is happy to be generous, to serve, to help others, can help protect us against selfishness, self-centeredness. Been at the almsgiving ceremony this morning or any such gatherings where traditional Buddhists get together and, and make offerings to the Sangha and and witness the the level of joy and happiness and fun that people are having. And what's going on there? What's behind that? Well, possibly a a cynical view on that might be that people are just caught up in in traditions and superstitious beliefs. Another view on it could be that people are collectively engaged in celebrating generosity. Making offerings, like we begin the puja, making offerings of candles and incense to the shrine, making offerings, giving, is about letting go. And if we perform these rituals of offering, these rituals of letting go, that can contribute to learning how to not take ourselves so seriously. Mm. And we do mostly take ourselves very seriously, our, our problems and our issues. And how do we let go of our negative self-perceptions? Well, one way of doing that is this cultivation of generosity, making an effort to contemplate and put effort into impeccability. So how does that happen in our society? Mm -hmm. This development of virtues. I've spoken before about how a hundred years ago in this country it was something like 90% of the population would go to church on Sunday. And now it's down to 3%. In the Church of England, that's the statistics, something like that. So a hundred years ago and for much of human history before that, once a week, people would do something special. They would consecrate this time. Get up in the morning, for instance, on Sunday morning and put on your best clothes and and go to this group gathering to celebrate goodness. Listen to teachings. Engage with songs and Rituals and symbols associated with goodness and forgiveness and generosity and patience and 
kindness and and those rituals although I'm not in many cases anyway I wouldn't be endorsing the views held behind those rituals nevertheless still there was an investment in the cultivation of virtue in a very powerful regular manner and now that's gone for many people in the world you think what happened in China and Russia which is a large percentage of the world's population for the last century religion was pretty much absent and and in recent decades likewise in the west and so where do people get an effective level of encouragement to cultivate goodness intentional cultivation of this level of competence where does it come from I think this is one of the biggest challenges we have to face uh, for the reasons that I've just been explaining. I mean, the reasons people can't face the normal everyday challenges of life is because they're not, we are not adequately uh, informed with these true principles. We're not adequately developed in these strengths, these forms of strength. But I don't personally think it's hopeless. I, I was reflecting earlier about how you know, mindfulness these days is a big thing. Well, it's big business for one thing, but also it's very popular. A lot of people are interested in developing mindfulness. Twenty, thirty years ago, I, I don't think many of us thought that mindfulness was going to become fashionable. It was just as one of these words that Buddhists talked about and but now, in the, certainly in the Western world, large percentage of the world's population know about mindfulness and, and many people are interested in developing it. And so why would it not be that, likewise, an interest could develop in cultivating integrity? You, know, you go for a job and instead of getting an, you know, an IQ, meaning intelligence quotient, it would be an IQ, meaning integrity quotient. You get examined by some... AI computer and tested for your integrity quotient and whether you get the job or not is determined by whether you lie or not or or generosity or your capacity for being patient or forgiving. I know that these suggestions could, could sound somewhat naive but I mention them here by way of example of how important it is I would suggest how essential it is that we make this equation in our mind that harmony, well-being inwardly and outwardly depends on the level of virtue that we're living with and if people can get the message that mindfulness for instance is beneficial then maybe they can also be educated and to recognising the benefit of other virtues. And, and if that happens, well then, maybe they'll come around to realising that not only survival in terms of the environment, but the survival psychologically, spiritually. Harmony depends on our recognition of the importance, the place of virtue. I thank you very much this evening for your attention.